Hello, everyone, and uh, welcome back to uh, Page Chewing on the awesome Steve Talks Books channel. And today, uh, Steve and I and the wonderful Beth Tabler, our boss at uh, Before We Go Blog, uh, has joined us uh, as a co-host. And we are featuring a phenomenal author, uh, well-known author and social media influencer, Alan Baxter. So welcome, Alan, to Page Chewing. Hi, thanks for having me. Social media influencer, I like it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that little blue check mark on Twitter, that means something, right? So. Yeah, well, that was back in the day when uh, they were giving them out. They're not, uh, yeah, I don't know what's going on with those things anymore. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah, who'd you pay off to get one, right? Yeah, yeah well, you just, you know. You just in my to... feet all the time. Oh, well, I mean, that's good. Back then, you just used to kind of, um, like, if, if you had some kind of, presence or some kind of public um, persona, you would just fill in a form on Twitter so that you get a few more management tools to deal with trolls is basically what it came down to. And you would fill in the form and you would either get the check or you wouldn't. Um, and yeah, that but now I don't know, you've got to do some crazy occult rituals and sacrifice chickens and offer them your firstborn and no whatever else now to get a to get a check. So yeah. So, so for a lark, I tried to get a check like I don't know, three weeks ago or something, just to see how it how it works out. And I went through all the the process, and I you don't have enough followers. I was like, oh, oh shit, okay, oh shit, nobody oh, likes well, you. I don't have many followers. Even. It's the quality of your engagement that matters. Nobody <sighs> judges that. Exactly. You have more than the followers for us, Ben. So, and you're definitely influential enough. So, oh, I don't know. Twitter messed up on that one. <laughs> Not having a blue check is the new having a blue check, though. Oh, yeah, I like that. It's the, it's the punk version, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> a revolution against the blue check mark, so. That's it, yeah. <laughs> so, Alan, we wanted to ask you about your new your new work that just uh, came out. I think the release date was September 1st, but it dropped a little early. Actually, it was, it was supposedly September 2nd, yeah. So, oh, okay. technically, which, uh, which for me is uh, tomorrow because oh, gotcha. uh, I'm here in the future and it's already September 1st. Um, but yeah, there was, uh, this, this is the cursed book. There's been, I mean, it's all good now, but there's been that many uh, hiccups and problems and things that didn't come through and things that didn't happen. Um, and one of the, uh, trying to get on top of one of those things meant having to get the book ready for publication earlier so that a bunch of books could be sent out. Um, and then uh, and a clerical error then put the release date as August 19 instead of the pre-order date. So it was supposed to go on pre-order for three weeks and then release on September 2nd, but it actually ended up going on sale on August 19. So all of a sudden we were scrambling because it was supposed to be a launch this week and then, oh my God, it's out already. People are buying it. What's happening? And so it just kind of, it just kind of tripped over and fell into the world <laughs> a few weeks early. <laughs> but it's out now. It's all good. So, yeah. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> so what can you tell us about it? What's the what's the book about? So it's called Sallow Ben, uh, which is the name of the town where it's set. It's a uh, small town folk horror is probably the best best way to describe it. Um, it's a summertime book, really. It's uh, the story of two teenage girls go missing after school one day um, in the small sleepy town of Sallow Bend in who knows anywhere, uh, specifically not really um it could be anywhere 
Um, and so the whole town sort of rallies together and turns out to try to find these girls and they're searching everywhere. And suspiciously, the carnival arrived the day before the girls went missing and everybody's very suspicious of the carnies and all that sort of stuff. But the carnies, they muck in and they help and they like, you know, we don't know what's going on, but we're going to try to find these girls too. Um, and the story focuses on mainly on two people, um, Caleb Jackson, who's the janitor at the school, who's socially awkward sort of a fella um, and prefers to be left alone to get on with his janitorial duties and not worry about anything else. And he gets dragged into the search uh, and he ends up teaming up with a woman called Trisha, whose son went missing the year before and hasn't been found. Um, and she's still holding out hope that one day she might find her son. Um, and then after some searching, the girls are found and everybody celebrates and everything seems okay except that only Caleb seems to realize that something else has come back with these girls. Um, and he can't understand why nobody else can see it, why he, only he can see it and trying to convince people that something seriously wrong is happening um, leads him to finally managing to convince Trisha and then the two of them trying to figure out what's going on while more and more people die in suspicious accidents or unexpected suicides and things like this until, you know, more is revealed and I'm being cagey now about giving too much away. So, yeah. <laughs> oh, I love small town horror. That's always so much fun to read. Yeah, well, I mean, it's kind of, it, it's something I've done. I've loved it myself for a long time. When I, I released, a couple of years ago, I released the, the book, The Gulp, which is um, set in the town of Gulpheather. And so that's, and locals call it The Gulp because the place has a habit of swallowing people. And so I get to write stories set in The Gulp. Um, there were five stories that were all sort of interconnected and it was quite popular. So I released another book, which was The Fall, which makes sort of a suite of 10 stories. Um, and I, I got to really explore that sort of isolated Australian harbour town with those books. Um, and that's this weird, creepy sort of cosmic, strange horror. And one, one reviewer said Baxter's found his Castle Rock, which was a huge compliment on that front. Um, and so, yeah, this this new novel, Sallow Bend, kind of follows the similar vibe of that yeah small town community and all the sort of internal politics and everybody knows everybody and people are suspicious and like or don't like people for different reasons, all that sort of stuff. It's very juicy stuff, the story. <laughs> And is this, Alan, is this going to be part of uh, an expanding universe? Is this a standalone or uh, like a, a series? What, what, what's this going to be? Sally Ben's a standalone. Um, I mean, never say never because you know, you're never sure when things might crop up. It, you know, it's entirely possible that, you know, there might be more stories set in or around Sally Ben. The, you know, with, with that story, one of the things that Caleb and Tricia discover is that this is not the first time it's happened. Uh, and they discover that Saliban has this history of every once in a while this thing comes around where people start dying and nobody seems to remember it properly and it's all this like weird creepy sort of repetition thing that goes on and th that's what this book is about and it sort of stands alone on its own on that front but I would never say I'll never revisit it um, because it is pretty cool and some of those characters are pretty cool but at this point it's one it's a you know it's one full-length novel it's a complete story and it's it's written to stand alone something like with the gold pepper stories I'm, I'm going to revisit that sort of geography the, the book i'm writing right now is set in moncton which is the town one south of gold pepper and so there's a sort of easter egg references you know characters refer to stuff that happened in the gold and things like that um, and i love that whole easter eggy sort of thing and i kind of deliberately yeah it's, it's <laughs> It's so much oh that's that so and so that's that's her from that story and all that stuff um <laughs> and i kind of deliberately built the gulp like that so that i had somewhere 
a fictional sort of universe that I could revisit for stories, um, which I which I plan to do. I've, I've already written a new novel, which is out on submission at the moment, which is set up in the hills behind Goldpepper. And it has no reference to it at all, other than the fact that as the family are on their way, they drive through Endon, which is the town north of Goldpepper. So now this next novel I'm setting in the town south of Goldpepper. So I'm just kind of hovering around that area and, and getting to sort of revisit that and reference little things and put Easter eggs and yeah. And so very much Goldpepper's got to be my sort of fictional horror universe to play in. So at this point, Stalo Bend was written as a standalone. At this point, that's kind of how it will remain, I think. Oops, someone needs to do a wiki. Someone needs to get the wiki going. Get yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll tell you what, I wouldn't really want to do a Goldpepper wiki because it's getting hard for me to follow what's going on. My notes are a mess. <laughs> <laughs> You're, Alan, you're a really prolific author. You've, yes. you've written a lot, a lot of, of stuff. You know, how did you, how did you get started in, uh, in the writing game? How did you get started? Um, I, it's funny, you know, this this kind of comes up sometimes, and it's it's it seems stupid to say it, but I don't really know. <laughs> um, I I've always written stories. I've always basically I've always made shit up. That's what it boils down to. I I just like to spin yarns. Um, and through my teens, I did a lot of role-playing games, like Dungeons and & Dragons and Shadowrun and Warhammer fantasy role-play, all that sort of stuff. <clears throat> and that really scratched the storytelling itch, especially, you know, I would run the games as, and when you get, when you're the DM, you get to tell the story, you know, and let the players kind of rip off what you're making up. Um, and then in my 20s, I ended up doing a lot of traveling because I grew up in the UK and I did a lot of traveling, ended up in Australia. Um, and one of the things I decided when I was traveling was that, you know what, I really enjoy writing and I've only ever done it sort of for fun. I wonder if it's worth trying to take it a bit more seriously and actually write with a view to publication. So at some point in my sort of mid twenties, I just started thinking like that and writing like that and started submitting to things and obviously didn't get published for a long time. because It was awful, uh, but slowly kind of, yeah, found my way and yeah, and it, I just kind of, I just kind of decided to fall into it. Um, but I was doing all kinds of things, you know. I've had, I'm one of those people. I've had that many different sorts of jobs and temporary jobs and part-time jobs and this and that. And then I ended up uh, getting eventually to a point where I, because I teach martial arts, is my sort of my day job. Um, and I got to the point where I was running a martial arts studio, doing a lot of personal training on the side, and all the hours that were left would be writing hours. Um, and it took a while to get in that position, but I kind of eventually managed to create that situation. And then I was able to write regularly and frequently, and I made it a priority. And yes, that's where that's where I end up being prolific, because then it's always been a thing that is an important part. It's just as important a job as the other things that I do, you know. And speaking of fighting, you you've actually written uh, how to write fight scenes. How much the how much fun was that for you to, to write that? Yeah, yeah, that's good. So that was a that was a strange one because you see that's one that sort of came about backwards as well. I I got a, rep, a reputation for writing good fight scenes with a couple of my early books, um, and that's just it, it's because I know how to fight. You know, like martial arts is something I've done since I was little, um, and you know did a lot of fighting, most of it um, sort of sanctioned and, and competition, not all of it. Um, <laughs> But this kind of, so that's sort of what I know, you know, so that when it, it, it wasn't any deliberate um, sort of thought process on my part, but whenever I wrote fight scenes, they people really enjoyed them. And I guess it's that whole write what you know thing, you know, like I, I knew what it was like, so I could I could portray a fight well. 
Um, and many years ago, <clears throat> there's a there's a conflux. It's a convention called Conflux down in Canberra, um, and I was going to go along to that. And somebody, one one of the people running the convention, was like, "We do a academic stream on the Friday before the con runs through the weekend. Um, would you think? Would you consider running a workshop on writing fight scenes um, as part of the academic stream?" I was like, "Jesus, I can't teach people how to write." Um, <laughs> But then I realized that, you know, I, the, the job isn't to teach anyone how to write. You know, these half half the people that showed up were way more published than I was at the time. But it's one of those things where people wanted the insight into the fighting. So I just, I just focused on what makes fight scenes realistic and how you sort of transmit that visceral kind of feeling, what it feels like, smells like, tastes like, all that sort of stuff. Um, and it was a really popular workshop and I got asked to do it again. And after I'd done it a few times, um, I would, people would keep saying, is there, is there any more, is there something to follow this up? Is there anything else after this workshop? People would take notes. I would sort of hand out cheat sheets, but people wanted a bit more. So eventually I basically wrote up the workshop in more detail into a short, it's, it's not really a, I mean, it is a book, but it's, it's a very short book. It's more like a very long essay, um, that just kind of breaks down everything that's covered in, in the workshop. And I just made it available as, as an ebook It's called write the fight, right? Um, and it's, it's basically just kind of a, a short ebook resource for people to follow. And it's been really popular. And it's also then really useful that I can <laughs> run this workshop, chat to people and say, take all the notes you want. But afterwards, you can just go and grab a copy of this. I think it's like $2.99 or something. You know, it's less than the price of a copy. You can just go and grab a copy of that. And it's got everything we talk about in, in more detail, sort of note four. Um, and yeah, so it's been quite popular. I've, I've run, I must have run that workshop more than 100 times now. Oh, wow. Yeah, I did it at Worldcon, I've done it at conventions, I've done it for libraries, I've done it for um, in schools with students who are studying writing. It is quite quite weird, yeah. <laughs> I know, um, you know, martial arts and fighting, it's very hard on the body. Uh, if you do martial arts for, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years yeah. plus, it, it's very hard on the body. Um, so do you think that's something you're going to continue, um, you know, with, with martial arts uh, training specifically? my body often wishes i would quit um yeah I've, i the, the the weirdest thing about it is as well that it you all of this happen when you're young you don't think about it and it's when you reach kind of the age where i'm at now your body reminds you of all these things you did in your 20s and in your 30s like remember when you broke that and remember when you dislocated it because it all comes back as like arthritis or <laughs> um, but uh, I, I teach and train a traditional style of Kung Fu that also includes the Qigong and Tai Chi aspect, um, which is very therapeutic. I would definitely be a far more broken person now um, if it wasn't for that stuff. So that, that stuff very much keeps sort of the body in shape. And, you know, I've learned a lot about kind of rehab and injury management and all those sorts of things. Um, so there, there is, I mean, it's been a part of my life for 40 years, you know, it's, it's not something I can really imagine not doing. There is a part of me that would like to not have to do it as a job anymore. Um, I would probably be a bit lost if it came to that. Um, I, if, I, I suppose in many ways it would be nice to be able to afford to not do it as a job. And then, you know, I could kind of dictate a bit more sort of casual hours for it or something I don't know but it's one of those things you know it's, it's a part it's a part of your life it becomes intrinsic to what you do and so at some point I see myself retiring from it but not really any time 
<laughs> particularly soon. But it's, it, the injuries are the injuries are something you have to sort of manage because when you're 20 and you hurt yourself, you, you get it, you know, give it two or three weeks and you're better. But when you get to my age, you hurt yourself. It's a good two or three months <laughs> for the same injury to heal. So they start adding up and stacking up on you, you know. So, but yeah, it's all, keep, keeping, you know, being smart about rehab and, and understanding the qigong and the therapeutic aspects helps keep the body young. And yeah, I do my best. But yeah, I do have a few aches and pains that are just going to be here forever. <laughs> so what makes a good, and obviously with your background, you said, uh, you know, one of the things that you're lauded for is your fight scenes. And I love, I love a well-crafted fight scene. That's one of the things I, I love to read and especially in a fancy book or a sci-fi book. What do you think makes a good fight scene in a book? So the, the, the real, the, the main, um thing that people tend to do is is too much is what it boils down to so if you're reading a book and you hit a fight it should be like the fastest most manic visceral experience um uh, and quite often you're reading and you hit a fight and suddenly you can you can almost hear the writer going okay fight scene i'm going to describe everything he did this and he did that and so oh god and everything just slows down because there's, there's so much detail there's you know there's this basic rule that i always try to remember in all fiction really um which is you know trust the intelligence of your readers we're we, we read books we're smart we're smart people right we we read them because we want a good story but we read them to exercise our imagination you know you could you could if if people could if you could record people's thoughts you could have five people read the same scene and if you could project their their thoughts as a movie, you would have five entirely different looking movies because everybody brings themselves to something, you know, and the way you visualize people or places or actions and all that sort of stuff. Um, and so you really need to allow people to do that. You need to allow people's minds and imaginations to be exercised by what you're doing. So I, I apply that to sort of all description. Character descriptions are incredibly brief. You know, I might describe I might drop in a hair color or a general body shape or something, but use, unless unless the way someone looks is very specific to the story, just let people fill in those gaps for themselves. Just drop a couple of hints to give them a couple of anchor points to move on and, and then let them do the rest. And, and fight scenes are very much like that as well. And, and it's that brevity um, and sort of lack of too much detail that really makes it feel fast and visceral and and makes people feel like they're in an action scene. Um, and so that means that because you're using shorter sentences and, and, and tighter description and stuff, you just need to really hit those key points. And so it, it's all about finding the right sort of the right description at each point and not always just describing technique. A lot of the time, one of the examples I use is like in the movies, one of the most useful things that people always, and we do this when we choreograph for stage or film or stuff like that. You might spend two minutes with the person doing the attack, right? You're going to do this, this, and this. Okay, right. And then you go and you spend 10 minutes with the person getting hit because you explain about angles and everything and reactions and whatever, because that reaction is going to sell the hit way more than the hit is. Yeah. And no matter how beautifully someone punches, if the person getting punched doesn't react realistically, it, it doesn't sell. There's a perfect example, actually. I use this sometimes, which, um, in in the harry potter films there's that moment where finally hermione has just had enough of draco malfoy's shit and she's walking away and then she just turns around and boom decks him there's this classic sort of scene where draco finally gets punched by hermione 
if you look at that, I ruin this now for people, but if you look at that more closely, and if you, it's on YouTube, when you, if you look around, she turns around, when she punches, her hand is like this. She just goes, ah, and her hand's wide open and doesn't go anywhere near it. it it's the most awful punch you've ever seen in your life. But Malfoy's reaction sells the hell out of it. Um, and, and it looks like, like, wow, she clocked him. Fantastic. It's, it's like, yeah. Um, and so I, I use that as an example about how we can write that as well, because a lot of the time we can really sell what's going on, not by what a person did, but by what happened to the person it happened to. Um, and by using little bit of description about um, attacks, little bit of really key description about reaction, throwing in things like, um, you know, the sensations and the smells and the sounds, because we can get in people's heads. Film is very two dimensional and term based because we have to watch it from outside. But with writing, we're inside. We can things can happen at once. We can smell, taste, feel what's going on. That emotional content, that adrenaline rise, and all that. So it's, a, it's about pinning really key points of all those things, but short, sharp, and and paced. You know, and then then you start to get powerful fight scenes. Which you know, it's a skill in itself. But the more you think about it, and the less you try and bog yourself down in detail, the better it gets. And you're absolutely right. I, I'm thinking back on some of the books I've read that have 50 page fight scenes. Like, yeah. aren't you guys tired? Aren't you tired? Yeah. yeah. Or people that have whole conversations. They're having a drag out fight in the street and beating the shit out of each other. And, and yet they're also having a whole conversation. And so they're using it as this, this vehicle for dialogue. And it's like, I guarantee if you're fighting for your life, you're not going to be soliloquizing. You, you know, you'll drop a, you might be able to drop a few smart aleck comments and drop a few key points. But again, drop the detail. It doesn't work. It doesn't happen. Yeah, fights are, fights are quick, usually and brutal and bloody, and 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 someone gets hurt badly, and maybe yeah. the person also gets hurt. And um, you know, I think about some of my favorite, particularly fantasy um, authors who write great fight scenes, like John Gwynn. Um, you know, he writes fantastic. Bernard Cornwell writes fabulous yeah. uh, fight scenes. Um, you know, Jenny Wirtz writes writes great great battle scenes. Evan Winter. Um, you know, and and it's all very. Like you said, it's visceral. It's quick. It's it's you know the, yeah. the it, it's bloody, and you you get this image in your head that you know um, it doesn't last long, right? Because it typically doesn't. Um, yeah. You know, so I can't wait to read some of your uh, fight scenes. Well, this is what I tell students. You know, it's like when we're talking about fighting for real. If a fight, if a real fight lasts more than a few seconds, you're in deep shit. Like <laughs> it, it, it's it's really problematic. You want to you want to. You want that to be over real fast and you want to be the one standing up because that, that's the other thing that the traditional sort of saying that when two tigers fight one of them walks away horribly wounded and the other is dead because that's what fighting is like you know it's fast it's powerful it's awful everybody gets hurt you know like this is why combat sport um is so different you have a referee you have all sorts of rules and stuff like that and that makes it um makes it something that we're able to engage in a lot more safely, but it's also a very different type of fighting as opposed to a, a genuine real fight where people genuinely mean each other harm. That everybody gets hurt and it's messy and it's horrible and it's if, if you're lucky, it's over fast. But uh, yeah, aren't aren't different styles uh, known for that? Like ones that just go on for the kill versus ones that are, I don't know, like uh, yeah, what's no, the it, it, it's any style that's teaching proper fighting, actual self-defense is teaching you to go in for the kill. No one's going to dance around and do their fancy moves um, outside of the tournament mat. Um, if they are, they're teaching you to get your ass kicked, basically, because that's, that's what's going to happen. Um, 
so a, a lot of styles have ended up developing where they've kind of focused more on competition, demonstration, whatever, and they sort of teach with that in mind, which in some ways is a real shame because, you know, you sometimes get people who've put, you know, 10 years, 15 years into their style and they're a black belt and everything else. And the first time they run into a situation on the street, they just get their ass handed to them. Um, because they're not used to what actual fighting is like, they're used to what fighting on the mat is like, and it's not the same thing. Um, so generally speaking, any style that teaches um, proper application for technique will teach the fast, hard, go for the kill sort of process of it. And as you get more developed um, and your skills improve, you can you you can have more time because you know you're more confident in your skills. You can relax a bit more. You know, initially you take it's with our style and with many when people are fairly new to it, you teach them to be very aggressive in the first instance because otherwise the, the opponent's aggression is going to overwhelm them. As you get better. You can you can take your time. My teacher talks about it like machine guns and sniper rifles. And, you know, when you start off, you attack like a machine gun. Once you're once you're good enough, then you can take a bit of time and <laughs> sniper rifle pick your moment. Um, but either way, when you go, you go. That you'd like. There's no dancing around. There's no fancy moves or anything else. Um, and some styles have very much gone. That's how fighting works. That's all we're going to talk about. And so you have styles like Krav Maga or things like that. They're just all about the most brutal, in your face, instant bang, finish it off. We have a very traditional style. So we do a lot of traditional weapons and dummies training, as well as lots of sort of complicated techniques and everything else. But we always teach the, the application of those things. And it's not like if you were in a fight, you would run through 14 of them in order to you know enjoy the fight. You One or two would be required and they're there and you're training and bang, it's done, it's over. So. Ideally, this is what you want. <laughs> so besides the, the fighting, the fight scenes that you know for, uh, Alan, what yeah. would you say is the, the next biggest component of your books? Are, are your books more character driven or are they more plot driven? How would you describe your, your writing style? Like? Um, well, story is all character for me. Um, it's a play, setting and place is as much a character as the people or whatever else might be in the stories you know this is evident with things like Salo Bend and the golf because the place is incredibly important to what happens um but for me see I, basically I always draw the distinction between plot and story so a, a plot is a bullet point of what happens this happens and this happens and this happens but story is why we care about it story is why we give a shit and story comes from character so characters are what give us story because if you've got this person doing a thing it's going to go like this and a different person doing a thing it's going to go like that so the net result of the plot this leads to this could be the same but how you get there and why you care about it is it comes down to the character um so i don't really draw too strong a distinction between being sort of plot driven or character driven in terms of the story but because uh, i you know i always want to have a strong plot i always want to you know i want I want stuff to have. My wife reads a lot of literary fiction um, and she'll like, oh, you should try this book. And my first read, does anything happen? It's like, you know, so many, you know, these stories about people and their thinking and their relationship with other people. And it's all very beautiful and it's well written and they're interesting people, but nothing happens. Where's the story? Where's the meat of that? I want, I want something to happen. So very much I'm into plot on that front because I like stuff happening. I like cool ideas, um, but it has to be, the right 
the right characters and character always comes first. It's like, how is character going to advance that story? Um, when I wrote the Alex Kane series, I'd had the idea, the plot ideas I'd had for that for a long time. And I had these things, I really wanted to use these ideas and write this story, but I didn't have the character for it. I didn't really have, I didn't know how I was going to frame it because I couldn't decide what characters to use to tell those stories. And this actually came a little bit out of doing all these workshops and stuff because um, it got to the point where I was like, man, people like these fight scenes so much. <clears throat> Excuse me. They like these fight scenes so much. I should write a character who is first and foremost a martial artist rather than writing stories where people can fight or whatever else. Um, and, I, and then it suddenly occurred to me these ideas I'd had for what well, the first book bound. I didn't know it was going to be a trilogy at the time. I thought it was a standalone but because I wanted to write this book. And I was like, oh, holy crap, that character, if I write a professional sort of underground cage fighter that gets dragged into this and it's his whole training and martial arts philosophy that kind of informs how he deals with these events, suddenly it all came together and it came together because it's like, that's the character for the story. And and then that's, that's how Bound got written. I have a couple of comments here. Let's catch up really quick. Our friend Hannah Blackwell is here. Hey, Hannah. Hello. And our friend, friend and author Priscilla Bettis is here. I love small town folk horror. Sounds great. It's the best. Creepy small town horror. I actually wrote um, on Chuck Wendig's blog, Terrible Minds. Um, he had me <clears throat> as a have a guest post on there a week ago or two weeks ago. I can't remember. Um, where I got to write about small town horror and, and why we like it. And so I, I ended up going into this whole thing about why is small town horror so good? Um, so that's up on, on terribleminds.com, which is Chuck Wendig's blog, if anybody's interested to have a look at that. Oh, nice. And uh, Bertie's here, Bertie in the books. Hello. And uh, Hannah just downloaded a book on, on Kindle Unlimited. You enjoy it? Thank you. Cool. I hope you enjoy it. And our friend uh, Northwest Reader is here, Christina. Ah, thanks for hey. coming by. <laughs> Three waving hands. Yeah. <laughs> uh, something that was uh, I noticed on your website was something I thought. Why well, hadn't I, I? I don't know if, if I've heard of this uh, kind of anthology before, but it's a found footage uh, anthology. Yeah, that was really cool. Uh, what can you tell us about that one? Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Um, so, um, so Gabino Iglesias, who's hot stuff right now, he's uh, I've, I've got his new book sitting on the pile. I haven't read it yet, but it sounds amazing. The stuff he's done before is awesome. Um, he's teamed up with Andrew Cull, who's an uh, Australian um, horror author. Um, <clears throat> and they came up with this idea. And I mean, uh, it's worth looking up on the on the website just to see the, the book cover, because the book cover is designed like an old VHS tape. And it just it looks awesome. Um, I'm looking uh, it up now, actually. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, cool, it's a sweet idea for a book cover. It looks just so good. And basically the remit was they want a, an anthology of short stories that are found footage stories. So where, you know, we, we all know the sort of thing, like the Blair Witch Project type thing, that sort of stuff. So, oh, yeah, yeah, there it is. Yeah. So it's done. So the, so it says nothing on the cover. It just says Memorex. Remember the old Memorex? Uh, yeah, um, yeah. So the, only, the title is only on the spine like that, like the tape in the box. It's, it's so cool. It's I'm such a nerd for this stuff, but that is such a good idea. For this. <laughs> um, so, um, so yeah, like the whole sort of Blair Witch or Cloverfield kind of vibe, they wanted this kind of horror told from a perspective of found footage, right? so rather than a, a, a sort of any sort of traditional narrative. And I saw the call out um, for this anthology and I was like, wow, that's a really cool idea. And I was busy with some other things and I had deadlines and stuff. 
and I was like, oh man, I've, and I've never written anything like that before. Um, I've done a little bit of sort of epistolary stuff once or twice, but I've, I've never really done anything along those lines. And it struck me as really interesting. But I was like, uh, and you know, you sometimes in this gig, you're like, oh God, I, I, I have to ignore this. This call out comes up or that, <laughs> oh, that sounds so cool. But you know, you, you've got to focus, man, like deal with what you've got <laughs> on your plate, right? Um, so I was like, ah, oh, I'm, that's a really cool idea. I hope it goes well. I, I haven't got time. I can't think about that now. I've got these other things to do. And then like literally that day or, or, or a day or two later, I was driving home from work after class one night. I, and I live in the country. So I live in, in dairy country. There's, you know, I'm surrounded by paddocks and stuff like that. And I drive into town where my studio is. So it was dark, it was at night, I was driving back and a roo went across the road right in front of me, which is the sort of thing that happens every once in a while, kangaroos or wombats, you know, suddenly sacrifice themselves to cars and some of them are big enough to sacrifice the car as well. Um, and I was sort of, you know, I'd been working, I'd been training, I was tired, I was kind of cruising home and this roo just shoo, boom, I came straight over a fence across the road and scared the shit out of me because I didn't see it coming. It was nothing. Um, and just for a fraction of a second, I was like, is that, as it, you know, cause suddenly it was there and, then it, and by the time I'd seen it and it was gone, oh God, it was a room. God, that was close. That, you know, thankfully it wasn't two seconds later, it would have been straight through the windscreen or whatever. Um, but then the moment that happened, this story idea just dropped fully formed straight into my head. And it was like, oh, sh right. Well, that, that would be a mad found footage idea. Um, and so I got home and, you know, my kid was just going to bed and I was like, okay, all right, I'll be back in a minute. And I sort of quickly, I came in here, my wife called the cave, this is where stuff happened. And I quickly sat down and I just tapped out a bunch of notes of this idea that had formed. And uh, yeah, everybody loves found footage, man. Yeah. Um, and, and so I, so I jotted down these notes and I was like, I'm, I'm tired, I'm going to think about that tomorrow. Um, but and then I did. Then I, I sat down here the next day, and I was supposed to be getting on with other things, and this idea was just knocking at my skull. And it's like, all right, okay, okay, let's see if I can pull this off. So I basically put aside a few days and was like, I'm, I'm just going to see if I can pull this off. I don't know if I can tell this story. I don't know if it's going to work. I don't know, you know, does the idea really have legs or not? Um, and this one of those stories that came out. You know, sometimes you have to redraft and redraft and redraft, and other times you, something kind of pours out almost fully formed and, and doesn't even require that much polish after the end of it because it, it it's just so well formed in, in in its idea phase you know and that and yeah and that was it and so I wrote the story and it, it's from it's from a point of view it's it's basically someone making a police report um using a bunch of stuff around a report from this guy a dash cam from that guy a CCTV from this place and blah, 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 putting it all together saying, you know, I know nobody believes this and they think it's this thing, but I think it's something else. And they, they kind of put their case together like that. And those, and those guys could be known and Andrew liked the story and, and bought it from the anthology. And so, yeah, so it, so it's in there, which is really sweet. And I think it's coming out pretty soon. I think where are we? It's just uh, October, uh, October 8th. Oh yeah. Okay. Okay. So just over a month. There you go. Cool. I can't wait to see it. I can't wait to see what, what other things people have done because the, the, the concept was cool. It's like, you know, how many different ways are there going to be to write a found footage idea, you know? So, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. What is it that Alan that draws you to write horror? Like what, what, what's so compelling with horror that 
that, you know, is it just, you know, uh, people like us that love horror, uh, is this that we're twisted? Uh, you know, what is it that, that, that uh, a little bit twisted. Yes, teeny yeah. bit. I was, at a, I was at a writer's festival once and there was a few people on the panel and then sort of opened the floor to questions and this guy put his hand up and he goes, this is a question for Alan, who hurt you? Um, it's, it, 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 I, it is a bit like that. Um, it, I've, it, we get this question a lot and what it comes down to for me is horror is the genre of honesty. It's, it doesn't shy away from stuff like I'm, I'm no nihilist, you know, I, I love life. I've got a kid and wonderful to watch him grow up and all that sort of stuff. Um, but we're all heading in the same direction. We're all on the same journey. We're all going to end up the same way at the end. You know, we're all worm food. Um, and while story is a way that we process everything in life and, and you know, we, we interrogate all sorts of ideas and how we react to things through story. Um, a lot of the time story conditions us to look for happy endings, to look for resolutions and stuff like that. Um, and, and that's how stories work, you know, but that's not actually how life works. It, it, even if one thing does get resolved already, it's a bunch of other stuff's also happening. You know, the, the thing about life is it just goes on until then suddenly it doesn't anymore. Um, and for me, horror addresses that as much as anything else. You know, it doesn't try to manufacture a happy ending. It doesn't try to twist things to be more positive than they are. And it doesn't have to be nihilistic, but it is more honest in that respect. And so, you know, if you start walking down a dark alley, you can turn around and come back, or you can be curious enough to keep going all the way and just see how dark it gets. And if the horror fans and the horror writers, we're the ones who we keep going to see how dark it gets. And that's what, that's what draws me. That's what makes me continue to do it. Um, and even if I do try to write something that's not so not so dark, it just always ends up going that way. Years ago, I got invited to um, write a story for an anthology called Hope. Um, and there was the, the anthology was going to raise money for a lot of mental health services and suicide awareness. It was written by, uh, it was edited, I should say, by a woman who lost her son to suicide. Um, and she, she was a fan of my work and asked me to write a story for it. And it was like, okay, this is an awesome concept, but have you read my work? Like, <laughs> not, it's not really, not really something you put in a hope anthology. And she's like, no, I reckon you can do it. I want you to write what you write, but just something with a thread of hope in it. And so I was like, okay, well, there's a challenge. Um, and and I, I did it, I pulled it off. I don't, you know, it was it was a Pyrrhic victory in some ways in that story and whatever else, but it, 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 I ended up writing a, a straight up fantasy story for that one, like, you know, a second world fantasy story for that one. Um, but yeah, it, it kind of came off, but it was still sort of dark and twisted because I was addressing the honesty of the situation for those characters. And so, yeah, that, that seems to be, that seems to be how it goes for me. It, it's just, yeah, it's honest. I just, I just see it through and, you know, people can be mean and dark and twisted to each other and it's cathartic to look at that and address that, sometimes dress it up as a monster. You know, like with the Rue, which is just such a ridiculous, you know, sort of crazy short novel. But what it's actually about is something pretty serious. And I just dressed it up as a demonic kangaroo. But yeah, that's that, that's horror. That's how it works for me. I was gonna say, what kangaroo hurt you? <laughs> <laughs> that's Keelan Burke and, and a bunch of people on Twitter who all got killed in the book for making me do it. Um, <laughs> that, that story came about because that people were sh sharing this news article about a kangaroo that was 
digging up everyone's gardens and attacking people in this little outback town and and a whole bunch of people were like this has to be a joke right this is like the australian equivalent of the onion or something and it's like no 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 that actually that actually happens there was a woman attacked on a golf course recently she got she was playing golf and she got 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 beaten up by a kangaroo it happens every once in a while um and yeah so keelan ended up mocking up this kind of 80s zebra horror cover called the rue for a bit of a joke and it was just too cool and then everybody started saying oh my god somebody's got to write that story you can't let a cover like that go you've got to write a story about a, a horror story about a kangaroo and then because i was the australian in the conversation everybody bullied me into doing it i started getting private messages and stuff going no seriously you really have to write this book and so i did <laughs> <laughs> Adrian's got me believing all sorts of stuff about the Australian outback. Like, yeah, we don't, have, nothing, we don't yeah, have cassowary. We enjoy here. more than uh, telling people what <laughs> happened here, and you can never tell if we're serious or not. But, uh, yeah, he's the, like, the best yeah, mindset go, always assume it's true. You gotta wear special vests when you go in the outback because the cassowaries attack you. <laughs> we have it's trees like, that will hurt you. Yeah, we, huh? there's land, sea, and air. There's something that will hurt and kill you in this country. It's, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, there's so many, like, poisonous snakes, you know, scorpions, you know, all these reptiles, all these, a lot of, uh, you know, sharks. Um, you know, Australia seems to, as beautiful as I hear it is, it seems to have a lot of, you know, as you said, deadly, deadly uh, animals that... that, that's, that that's the yin and the yang of it all, you know. It is an amazing country, and it's beautiful and whatever. You just, you know, you just might get eaten. Is, uh, one of my one of my favorite facts about Australia is you know Australia has nine out of the nine out of the top ten most venomous snakes in the world. Or another way to put it, Australia has the nine most venomous snakes in the world. <laughs> so, you know we've we've got spiders bigger than my hand. There's jellyfish that are about that big that can kill you because they hurt so much that you can actually go into shock, have heart attacks from the degree of pain for Irukandji jellyfish there. We've got we got a thing called a stinging tree. Like it's a tree, and the leaves hurt you. And if you if you fall into it, you get enough on you. Again, you can have serious shock reactions and you know anaphylaxis from a tree. And there's there's shit everywhere that just wants to hurt you, man. And just the country itself. You know, we lose tourists every year because people just go wandering off into the outback, thinking it's not nearly as big as it actually is, and they just get lost and die out there. Like literally, the geography of this place will kill you. So, yeah. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you guys are really <laughs> How do you compare um, living in England to Australia? Like, <laughs> Whenever I go back to England now, and I haven't been for several years because we were actually due to go back at the start of 2020. We were all booked in and then and COVID destroyed everything and we still haven't been. Um, so it's been a longer gap now since I've been back than ever since I was here. But every time I go back, I just, it's so freaking small. I just get, I get reminded, I get, the streets are narrow, they're packed with cars and people and everything is so small and cramped. Um, because you just get used to kind of the space that we have out here. Um, but Australia is kind of, culturally, there is a thread of absolutely Australian culture um, that is slowly becoming more and more, you know, established. But it, at its foundation, Australia is a weird amalgam of Britain and America. Um, so the, the culture is, is kind of like the bastard love child of those two countries in a way. Like the, the original sort of population of Australia was British. So even if you look back in the 60s and 70s on Australian TV, even then, 
you know, you have people, people are interviewing with the British BBC accent. It's like, do people still talk like that on Australian TV, even, you know, 50 years ago or less? Um, so there, there was very British cultural um, sort of invasion, basically, of this country, because Australians have been here for a long ass time, like tens of thousands of years. Um, <clears throat> but when it comes to white Australia, it was such a such a British kind of invasion at first, but then there's been so much consumption of American culture. And because Australians, I think, have this idea that, well, yeah, we came from Britain, but we're not British. We're going to move away from those roots. We're Australian. So they kind of especially draw in American culture rather than British culture because it's distinct because Americans, you know, that Americans threw away the trappings of Britain as well. And they're like, well, they did it. We can do it too. So we've ended up with this really strange kind of cultural mishmash of this very British roots, but with very American influence to it, which became, you know, like the seed of, of sort of white Australian culture that has subsequently grown into this kind of weird Australian thing that, you know, it slowly develops its own culture along the same way as well. And thankfully there's a, there's a, a lot of recognition now not nearly enough, but we're definitely slowly moving in the right direction. There's a lot more recognition of original Australians and indigenous culture and celebrating what's actually unique about Australia in terms of its geography and its people in the first place, which is where we should have begun, not with the British and the Americans. But yeah, it makes makes for an interesting, it's, a, it's quite a melting pot of a country. It's quite interesting. I used to, um, one of my favorite shows um, when I was really into police procedure stuff, it was an Australian uh, police called Water Rats. And it was, uh, oh, it, it no. was uh, I think it was a New South, New, uh, New, New South Wales police service. And it yeah. was really like, uh, you know, I mean, it was your typical, you know, detective, copper, you know, catch the bad guy, shoot him up, you know, bit of background about the, the coppers' lives and their, their love lives and things like that. But what I loved about um, watching the show, especially with seeing, you know, Australia and seeing these settings, a lot of it was on the water and just realizing that, you know, it was very like, you know, a lot of nautical stuff and it was really, really cool. Um, yeah. Well, Sydney's a harbour city, like very much a harbour city. Like the whole thing is built around Sydney Harbour with the Opera House on one side, the Harbour Bridge on the other. Um, and yeah, Water Rats was kind of cool in that respect because they, you know, they were frequently out on the speedboats zooming around Sydney Harbour and stuff like that. Man, that takes me back. I, I, that was when I was first in Australia. That show was really popular. I haven't seen that for a long time. I'm dating myself now, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's got to be more than 20 years ago, I think. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. It was a good show, though. Yeah. I used to watch it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I really, I really like it. Yeah. I watch uh, Bondi Beach. Oh, Bondi Rescue? That? Yeah, Bondi Rescue. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, because of, because I do the because I teach martial arts and everything like that, <clears throat> I have to have um, first the senior first aid certification um, that you have to keep renewed. You know that every couple of years you have to go and renew it and find out what they've changed now and basically how many chest compressions of, to breaths it is for CPR because it just changes this almost yearly all the time. Um, but frequently when you're doing those. Um, courses as an example they'll use clips from bondi rescue um this is someone having a heart attack and how these people responded this is someone who's been stung and this and how they're dealing with it and stuff so i've seen most bondi rescue i've seen has been in first aid courses <laughs> it's really fascinating i yeah yeah, oh, wow. yeah i used to yeah, live in two suburbs south of bondi when i lived in sydney 
So Bondi's on the on the coast, the one south of that is Tamarama, and the next one south of that is Bronte. And I, I lived in Bronte for about 10 years, though I would frequently sort of run between Bronte and Bondi or Kuji in the other direction and stuff like that. And I did a lot of personal training, I had a lot of clients in and around Bondi. So yeah, every once in a while, I would we'd be standing there watching film that show and stuff. <laughs> Jellyfish often come up on it. That's what made me think of it. Yeah, well, especially the what do you call it? Um, we call it a blue bottle, but uh, man of war, Portuguese man of war hmm. is um, the like little purple one with a balloon on top that kind of gets blown along by the wind and it has these long trailing um, sort of stingers that come out. And one or two of them just hurt like hell, but they're fine. But you swim into one and you get it wrapped all around you and it burns, man. It really, really hurts. And yeah, so wow, they're, they're pretty common. In, in, and you know, you can't see it. The jellyfish is sort of over there, but it's it's long tail, and so you swim around and yeah, yeah. They just they just swim around, you know. Yeah, <laughs> just yeah. around the jellyfish. I'd be screaming, running out of the water. Yeah, well, if there's been a big storm, they all get blown into shore. So if there's been a big storm, you walk on the beach the next day, it's just covered with these blue spots of all these things. They're just all washed up and, and just drying on the sand. There's hundreds of them. That's crazy. <laughs> have, have you had a run-in with one of those, Alan? I've been stung a couple of times by blue balls, yeah. Um, never, never too badly. Normally, um, like, you'll get a bit will go across the arm or a leg or something, and when, when you're in the when you're in the water in the, in the, there's certain things that you just you just respond to you know? so if you're swimming and you feel that sting you feel that burn just quickly stop back up go the other you don't want to keep swimming into it um, but yeah they're not that bad unless you get a really bad wrap around or really it's they're worse for kids because obviously you know kids are a lot smaller so the sort of skin mm -hmm. yeah ratio to body is a lot less so that it hurts more for them and and, and gets a bit more of a shot um so I've, I've been stung a couple of times by them it's never never been sort of too bad for me but i also don't spend a lot of time in the ocean because it's fucking terrifying frankly it, i you know i the things that live in there man and you, you can't even see them i i I'll, i really enjoy body surfing i love catching waves so i'll swim out and i'll you know i'll catch waves and surf body surfing uh, but I won't. I rarely go beyond the break, and I hate being out of my depth in uh, in the ocean. I just, I just, my my imagination just imagining all these things under there at any point coming up. I mean, I saw Jaws when I was too young, and that's that that set my opinion of the ocean right from a very early age. Um, and we we actually do have those sharks right here on the beaches sometimes. Not, not on the beach, obviously, but you know, <laughs> in the ocean, like very near to the beach, and so. Yeah, I, I have a I have a love-hate relationship with the ocean. I love body surfing and then I'll do it until I freak out too much and I can't stay anymore. <laughs> Speaking of Jaws, was there another movie that um, kind of set you on the horror path? Was there a movie that defined kind of your go-to horror movie? Um, to some degree there are. Um, I also watched American Werewolf in London way too young. Um, that had me sleeping with the lights on for a week. Um, and I was just talking about this the other, I was a guest at Comic-Con last week in, down in Canberra. Um, and a few of us, a few of the sort of, normally when you do these sorts of conventions, because they're sort of pop culture conventions, so you have a whole bunch of different type of guests. Um, and you, have, you know, there's movie and TV actors and voiceover actors and stuff like that. And then there's loads of comic book writers and artists and authors. 
Um, and it always tends to be that the, the authors and the comics guys all tend to congregate together and hang out and chat together because the actors <laughs> tend to stick to their own, you know, like they, they don't tend to sort of socialize the same way because they're, they're actually the genuinely famous people. They don't want to go out to the local pubs and get mobbed or whatever. Whereas we, we just write books and comics and nobody knows who the hell we are. So we just go out and get drunk afterwards. Um, and it was one of those things we were having this sort of party at the uh, at a, at a pub not far from the Comic-Con and um, we got talking about favorite monsters and everything like that. And um, I've agreed that the next book I'm going to write um, will be a werewolf novel that I've kind of had in mind for a long time. And I've never done it yet because I don't want to mess it up. It's like ever since then from American werewolf in London, I've had this absolute fascination. If, you know, if I've got a favorite monster, you know, sort of classic horror monster tropes, if you like, um, werewolf is it. Um, and I've had this idea for an outback werewolf um, novel for a long time, and I just haven't written it, haven't written it. And these comics guys, one of the guys in particular, Andrew Constant, who writes for Marvel and DC and stuff, was was bugging the crap out of me basically until I agreed, okay, I'm going to write that book. So, yeah, so that was de that as as movies go, that one was definitely seminal. Um, and John Carpenter's The Thing, the the Carpenter's remake of The Thing, is probably. I, that that and Event Horizon are probably the two horror movies I've watched more than any others. Um, I was going to say are, Event Horizon. Yeah, they're both very, very um, influential on on me. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely what, terrifying movie. Yeah, very terrifying. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what about um, writing influences? We talked about movies. What about author uh, influences? And any, especially any. Australian uh, horror authors that that, that come well from. yeah um probably the biggest influence because I I read I was into a lot of comic books um I did a lot of comics and movies and stuff as a teenager and that had a massive impact on me um in terms of authors probably Clive Barker is the most influential it's probably you know if it comes down to it probably Barker's probably my favorite author um and what I do is, you know, he always he talked about how he, he likes to write the dark fantastic, you know, where it kind of blurs those lines between horror and fantasy, um, which is probably largely where I'm most at home as well. Um, so Barker is definitely a massive influence, huge influence from comics back in the day, people like Alan Moore and Garth Ennis and Jamie Delano and people like that. Um, but then yeah, just across the board. I mean, there's influence from so many different places. King obviously has his place in there. I've read a lot of King as a teenager. But then Australia really does punch above its weight when it comes to horror writers. We really have some of the world's best down here. And in terms of per capita, I don't know quite how we sort of managed to churn out so many, but Karen Warren is an outstanding author. Um, people should read everything that she's done. Um, Aaron Dries. Is another amazing author. He's just got a, a new book out, a new collection called Cut to Care, which um, literally just came out. Um, and his novella, Dirty Heads, was out, I think, it was earlier this year or end of last year. It was just outstanding. It's just, he's a brilliant writer. Um, Jay Ashley Smith, Joseph, he's another guy that writes just amazing, um, this kind of quiet, disturbing, strange horror. He's got a novella called Ariadne, I Love You, which is brilliant and yeah, proper weird. Uh, Rob Hood, Robert Hood writes amazing ghost stories. Kirsten McDermott writes 
incredible horror retellings of fairy tales. Kirsten's an amazing writer. Um, she's also, oh, I can't remember what it's called. So, I mean, she, she's got a short, she's got a collection from 12th Planet Press called, it's, it's called Caution Small Parts or Moving Parts or something. Like, I can't remember what that thing's called. It's, it's, in, it's in the other room. I don't have it here to check by Kirsten McDermott. Um, but that's a collection of stories that is just amazing. One story in particular, the, the, I'll just say the one about the dolls. If you ever read it, you'll know exactly um, what I'm talking about. I, I think it's called Caution Small Parts or something like that. Uh, check, check anyway with Kirsten McDermott. Look that one up. That that's that's amazing. Um, okay. And Lisa L. Hannett is another amazing Australian horror writer. She's actually Canadian as well, in fact. Um, but she's been here for I don't know how long. Quite maybe probably as long as me, like twenty years or more. I've been here, I think, twenty five years now. Um, but but she writes beautiful, beautiful um, horror stories. Like she's just lyrically so good, um, and she. She's got a, a good place. Bluegrass Symphony is a collection of hers, which is a really good place to start, where she has this um, kind of Southern Gothic, weird, creepy kind of horror story vibe. She's she's amazing. Um, and, and she's smart as hell as well. This, this, this woman, she's a, um, a scholar. She teaches at university and stuff like that. And she did a paper on, I'm going to get this wrong, Lisa, if you're listening, I apologize if this is not right, but the, the essence of it is correct. But basically, she was doing this study on um, Icelandic Vikings, and she taught herself medieval Icelandic in order to read the sagas in the original form in order to make the in order to have her PhD accurate. As well. I mean, the, the hell who teaches himself a medieval language, you know, <laughs> in order to do a better job on their PhD. She's amazing. Um, yeah, and her writing is beautiful. So yeah, yeah, there's a, there's a bunch to be going on. With. And if you like that kind of like like urban fantasy horror kind of crossover, Maria Lewis writes the Supernatural Sisters books. I think there's eight of them now. Uh, each book focuses on a different kind of character, so like a, a ghost or a werewolf or a banshee or a siren. Um, and so it's this kind. Of, and she's a classic horror fan. Maria's what what Maria doesn't know about horror movies is not worth knowing. She's one of those sorts of people. Um, and her novels are, are just cool. She just has this sort of wild crossover of, of like urban fantasy and horror with all these crazy creatures in there. Yeah, the whole series, the overall series is known as the Supernatural Sisters series because each book focuses on a different sort of main character. Yeah. You're killing my TV. Yeah, you're killing my TV. And uh, our friend Daniel, Dr. Puff and Stuff, had a question. Uh, what book is your Jaws or Werewolves equal? Oh, man. You, uh, you know what? I'll tell you what. The, 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 best, the best werewolf novel I've, I was going to say I've read recently, but maybe I've ever read, uh, is Stephen Graham Jones, Mongrels. Hmm. That book is absolutely, I mean, he pretty much redefined the, the werewolf sort of genre with that book. So Mongrels by Stephen Graham Jones would probably be the, the best answer to that. Um, and it's also partly why I'm reluctant to take on a, a story of, you know, a werewolf story. It's like, damn, I can't do anything as good as that. Um, but that's probably, I mean, Stephen Graham Jones is an outstanding author. The stuff he turns out is just fantastic. But Mongrels in some way, in many ways, is probably my favorite of all of his stuff. It's uh, And that's probably because I have this werewolf soft spot as much as anything else. Uh, but yeah, so so maybe that one that 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 novel is absolutely worth checking. Or of course, the Rue by me. 
which is basically jaws <laughs> or Razorback or whatever, but it's a uh, but it's a kangaroo. Yeah, Austin is. Yeah, I, uh, sorry, not sorry. Yeah. Drowning in your DBR. Yeah, I, I hear it's a, it's an eternal problem. Stack just keeps getting higher and higher. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So or is especially if, uh, young. It's going to be because my TBR fell on me. So. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of it. I, sorry. I was, I was. I have stored multiple rooms now because. It's just, it's just going to kill me. I'm going to walk into it and it's going to fall over. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no, no, I'm saying I blame people like like Beth and Steve and doing page chewing and meeting people like Alan, just like the TBR just, it just explodes, right? So because the people you meet influence, you know, you're, oh my gosh, it sounds so good. And then you run and put it on there. I was at Comic-Con last weekend um, selling, there to sell books, you know, to sort of meet people, sign books, sell books. And I came back with six new books as well you know like just from the one weekend just because the other guests that were there there's you know like aaron's new one i hadn't got before and it's yeah so it's 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 uh it, we, we we have a problem when we know it and we don't care yeah it's a good problem to have though that's why i tell my wife you know when she's like oh you're on more books and you know we have book problem. I said honey we have a book storage problem <laughs> we don't have a book buying problem <laughs> but i always tell you there is no such thing as too many books only too few shelves <laughs> And there's a difference between book reading and book buying. You know, they're not yeah. they're not necessarily go together. I, I buy plenty of books that I haven't read yet. Or well, I was telling someone last weekend as well. They were like, "Oh, you know, this sounds really good, but I've just got so many books I still haven't read." And I was like, "Yeah, but you should get this one too because whenever it's time, whenever you finish your book and you're looking for the next thing to read, you don't just read." You know through the stack you go right what what am i in the mood for now what's grabbing me today so the more books you have in your to read pile the more likely you are to find something that nails the mood you're in at any given particular point so your, your tbr can't be too big because you, you just need to be able to find the thing you want and some things will sit there for months years maybe never get read but eventually you'll be in the mood for it but you've got to keep adding stuff to it, it will, you know everyone's a mood reader to some degree I think. yeah yeah my wife yeah, my wife forced me to separate the books that I hadn't read onto one shelf and keep the other ones just so she could have an idea about how many books that I bought that I hadn't read. It's like, oh, that's bad idea. <laughs> never, never admit to that. Never admit it. <laughs> bad idea. <laughs> Had a full bookshelf full of unread books. So, oh, yeah. uh, oh, that's all good. That's all good. And Ellen, when when uh, Celebend was released early, what was that feeling like for you? Because you plan a release and you you kind of plan to promote and you plan all this stuff, and it's you have a date in your mind, and then it's released early. What was that? What was that moment like when it was for sale and people were buying it? Um, to be honest, by that point, it was like, yeah, sure, okay, all right, <laughs> um, because so. There, there was a few hiccups with that book. It was it was supposed to be. I don't know if you guys are aware of the the Nightworms subscription package. Sadie. Um, yeah. Yeah. Sadie yeah, Hartman yeah. and um, yeah. Spookish Mummy. My God, I can't remember her actual name. <laughs> I remember their handles, Mother Horror and Spooky. <laughs> um, but um, they were kind enough to. They were going to include Sally Bend in the August package, um, and everything was all set up for it. Uh, and then the freight company lost a pallet of books like it's oh. like a, like a pallet the size of a small car lost still hasn't been found um 
and so and so there was this huge problem there and it was right about as when they were so eventually they had to replace the book at the last minute with something else and Salabend was supposed to be in the package and then wasn't um so people got their packages um and there were two different books in there but i'd already sent the signed book plates in so they all got a signed Salabend book plate but no copy of the book and bless them so many of the nightworms people and thank you so much for this uh buying the book anyway to put the the book plate in which is really nice to see um but by the time all that sort of debacle would happen how can you lose a pallet of books and you know what's going on and and so then by the time we sort of go oh okay people are buying the book oh it's for sale it's not pre-order it's like, yeah sure okay why not yeah <laughs> you know like everything else that's happened with this book it's like yeah okay sure Let, let's just roll with that then okay the book's out hey everybody the book's out let's go let's go so yeah we just we just kind of rolled with it so it just the whole thing just kind of was just running and stumbling and tripping over all the way and now here we are and it's out and so yeah then the net result is that it's out and it seems to be getting a, a good reception at this point and the early reviews have been really awesome to see so yeah so i'm, I'm down with it now it's all good <laughs> <laughs> got people talking about it yeah yeah uh, and and you know you always agonize this, and this stuff never gets easier it doesn't matter how many books you put out like when you start heading towards release day and you start thinking what are we going to do how are we going to raise this buzz what's going to happen and you know we'd started thinking about what we were going to do to to sort of boost awareness of the book. that's what it basically comes down to is make, make enough people aware of the thing um and we were sort of talking all about that for this week uh basically and then all of a sudden it was like oh oh that's out okay so that that sort of went by the wayside so you know all that anxiety just kind of got wiped out anyway so in some ways you know there's there's, there's pros and cons to everything so, um but at the end of the day you just want a book sort of out and available and um you know it's available for bookstores to order in now people can you know whatever stores they prefer to to get things from they can go and get it and so now it, it's out in the world and we just hope people enjoy it and get behind it so. That's really cool. That's really cool. Yeah. What do you think, Alan's the hardest part about writing for you? I know for me, it's, it's you know, it's necessary evil, but it's the slogging of editing and editing and editing and editing and editing. That's that's my bugaboo. It's necessary. You can't do without it. But that's that's the part that um, probably my least favorite part of, of, of writing, but it's integral to writing. Well, what's 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 the hardest part for you? Of, of um. Yeah, it's funny because I've heard a lot of people say exactly like like yourself that um, that you know they love the writing or they hate the editing. Some people hate the writing and love the editing. I think they're a rarer breed. Um, I, I'm a bit of a weirdo. I kind of I kind of enjoy all of it. Um, I really enjoy the process of that creation of discovering the story as it goes along because I plan a little bit, but I, I don't plan a lot, um, and I like to be quite organic in how a story grows. So I love that feeling of sort of discovery in the process of writing. Um, and I love getting to the end of a thing, but then I'm also really excited then uh, about going back to the start. Okay, let's see, what have I written? Let's make it better and, and sort of polish it up. Um, so I generally tend to enjoy the process of of editing as well. The, the most recently finished book um, that's just gone out to submission now that that broke that rule because 
it took me so long to get that book right. Every time I would redraft it, it's like, that's no, not right, that's not right. And I got sick of it. I've I, I read that book more than any other. Uh, and it's good now. It's, I finally figured it and it's fixed. And it's like, okay, that's the book this is supposed to be. That's great. I'm happy with it now. Um, but I definitely got sick of the editing process with that one because I kept trying to figure it and make it work and make it better. Eventually I did. Um, but, but generally speaking, the, in the process of writing, um, I kind of enjoy all of it that, you know, the first drafting and the editing and the polishing, I think in, in many ways, the thing I enjoy least is the, the process of publishing, you know, like publishing and marketing and stuff becomes, it's an intrinsic part of the job, um, you know, and I'm happy to do it because it's great to connect with readers and to sort of slowly build that awareness of, of the work that you do. Um, but there is a part of me that would love to be one of these people who could just sit in a cabin somewhere and just see, so just do the writing and send it out. And you just have people sitting there going, when's the next book coming? And it's, oh, nearly, and you just send it out. And then you just start working on it and you don't have to think about any of the rest. Um, that I can, I can, yeah, that sort of appeals in a way. But then equally, you know, like I love doing the cons and stuff. Like when I was at Comic-Con last weekend, it was awesome. It was really cool. It exhausts me because fundamentally I'm an introvert um, and I can turn it on and I, it's, I enjoy socializing and being out and, yeah, and talking about books and talking to readers and seeing who's doing what cool stuff. Um, and I, I got this one recently. It's just still sitting on my desk. I was just reading it. This is Clever Man, which is... Um, uh, very Australian, Indigenous Australian stories. It was a TV show and stuff that they've done as comic books now. And I got to hang out with those guys and talk about this stuff. About that. Um, but then it takes me like a week to recover. Um, it just drains me um, when I do these things. Um, and so it's it's always so cool to do, but it's always exhausting as well. And that kind of whole roller coaster, book release and promotion and tour and this and that and I, I, that whole thing. It's it's an amazing position to be in. It's awesome and a privilege to to do it, but it's also just it's so exhausting. It, it's yeah, it's kind of intense. And there's a part of me that would love to just sit quietly and just write stuff and send it out and write the next thing and send it out and not think about anything else. But but if I did that, of course, I would miss all of that. I'm sure I would be like, oh, I need to get out. I need to see people. I need to. And why haven't I been to a con in two years or whatever? <laughs> uh, speaking of comic books, you meant I read here that uh, you're a fan of Garth Ennis and Neil Gaiman's uh, Hellblazer for Garth Ennis and The Sandman for Neil Gaiman. Yeah. What about those books intrigues you? What kind of connection do you have to those books? Um, in some ways, they sort of came along at a real formative time in, in my reading. So I used to read a lot of comic books. I, I mean, I've read a lot of everything constantly. I, I was, fantasy was where I was sort of my first love reading things like Lord of the Rings and the Belgariad and those sorts of things. Um, and then definitely too young, really, but I discovered horror as well. I discovered James Herbert, um, the Fog was the first horror novel I read and was like, wow, this is mad. What the hell is this stuff? And then I started consuming horror novels like crazy. Um, but throughout that time, I was also a, a real comic book fan. Um, and I would have standing order at the local comic store. I would go every Saturday and, and pick up my comics and then, you know, sit and read what was what. Um, and so, um, like Jamie Delano um, and Garth Ennis in, in the original Hellblazer runs, 
um, I, I got those as they came out. Like that was new comics back then when I was collecting comics. I was like, that sounds cool. So I bought issue one. Sandman issue one, I've got a copy signed on the cover by Neil Gaiman and Dave McKean who did the cover art because I went to pick up my comics one day and they were sitting there, these two young dudes promoting their new book, Sandman number one. And it's like, that sounds cool. And so I stood and had this conversation with Neil. I was like, oh, what's it about? Like, I'm sitting there, Neil Gaiman's pitching me his work. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> it's down there in a in a <laughs> one of those folders with the sort of things and the, yeah, it closes and locks up so yes it's very safely tucked away um but yeah so th these were things that were sort of being written and coming out at the time that i was discovering at the time and then buying and reading weekly um and particularly hellblazer and sandman the way they had these kind of dark and twisted storylines that just mixed up mythology and magic with the everyday and you know someone like John Constantine you know he's just this gritty kind of urban dude who's actually a mad powerful magician and that sort of stuff that just really really rung my story bell in terms of the sort of characters and things that I really like and so it was absolutely sort of seminal in, and when I was playing a lot of role-playing games like I talked about and, and was sort of hobbyist writer. Those were the sort of things that I would really draw on, those kind of gritty urban characters and the magic and the mythology and everything all sort of mixed up together. That that just really, I love that kind of story and the, the sort of hidden worlds within our own worlds and the consequences of messing with those worlds when you should be left well enough alone and all that sort of stuff. And I mean, the whole Alex Kane trilogy is probably the closest in in those terms to to that sort of stuff that i've done but i that that's what i love that and uh, barker as well with things like you know the great and secret show and weave world and those sorts of things where you where you kind of make this crazy mix of all that stuff together the real and the unreal and the, the you know this minuscule and the cosmic and the, all that stuff mixed together is just it's awesome it, it, it there's no boundaries it's storytelling without fences you know so yeah, that, that's that's what I dig. That's what I like to play with. So yeah, they they was they were influential to a massive degree. Sandman and Hellblazer in particular. Me too. Yeah. They, yeah, Sandman really got me uh, reading graphic novels. Yeah, and I've heard this a bit from from a lot of people because I was always I was already such a sort of avid comic reader by then. But also as well, like around that same era, you know, DC and Marvel were the big names or whatever. But then it was in in the in the eighties. Then was when a lot of the other imprints started coming through, um, like Vertigo and Dark Horse and stuff like that, where they would veer away from the shiny polished superheroes and start telling these weird and dark and gritty stories. And horror comics started to be a thing, and you know, mm -hmm. um, and and that was that was just awesome. That was perfect timing for me because that's exactly what I, you know, I used to really enjoy reading the Batman and detective comics and all that sort of stuff. But then when things like Dark Horse started coming out with, um, you know, you know, things like Predator and Alien comics, even that sort of stuff, when they start doing those franchises and you get those in graphic form as well, just loved all that stuff, just consumed all that stuff. And it created things, made opportunities for things like Hellblazer and Sandman and V for Vendetta and, you know, Watchmen and all those sorts of things. So, yeah, amazing time. It was an amazing time in comics. That was a real renaissance right then in the mid to late 80s. Yeah. Have you watched the show at all? The, uh, the Sandman? Yeah. I consumed it over the course of about two days. Yeah, they uh, they actually did a really good job of it. I was really dubious. Of, oh, God, I, you know, it was always 
people always said, you know, this would be, you know, these this comic series would be such a great TV show. And then there was, you know, the other camp of people going like, you could never do it. You can never do a graphic novel like that justice in in TV form sort of thing. Um, I reckon they did. They did a pretty bloody good job of it. It's um, yeah, I, I was really impressed. I was really dubious about whether it would be any good. And I was like, God, I hope it's OK. Uh, and I really enjoyed it. They did a really good job of it, I think. So I really hope they get a second season because they get to draw out more of this story. It would be amazing. Yeah, he's got there's plenty of source material to pull from. Yeah, they barely they barely <laughs> started with that first series. So there is there is so much they can do with it. Yeah. <laughs> And being such a, a long-time comic book fan, have you ever thought about writing a comic book? Yeah, um, I would love to see some of my work adapted to graphic novels, um, and I've never really, I've never sort of really written or thought of written one or, or or scripting an actual comic. Partly because it's not really my wheelhouse, but also um, because I, I wouldn't really know where to go with it or what to do with it, sort of thing. Um, maybe I should go drinking with these comics guys at Comic Cons more often and find <laughs> yeah, find someone to give yeah, um, give me a, give me a key to a door. I don't know, um, but I would love to work with some people and see some of my stuff adapted into graphic novels. Would be amazing. It almost happened once. I um, had a couple of meetings and had a chat with a couple of people about it, and it didn't really come together. So you know, never say never. It might it might happen. It's um, you know, I write stories the way that I do because I love them, but I'm a huge fan of, of comics and movies as well. So seeing anything adapted for either of those is just an absolute thrill, you know, and especially movies and TV, of course, because the real money in writing is in, <laughs> is in options. <laughs> I'd go see The Rue. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a ready-made, straight-up Ozploitation horror movie. And it's even... An, it's even novella it's like 110 pages or something it's, it's the perfect length for a movie script you could literally just yeah and i have actually had a couple of people sniffing around for that um and asking about it but nobody's actually bought the option on it yeah somebody has got the option for the gulp and the fall um we did sell the option on that so that's that like it's not it's i mean selling an option is a long hell of a long way from actually going into development most things you know 99 percent of options never get um exercised uh, but somebody is working on that at the moment. They've got the option um, looking towards making that um, into a into a limited series, which would be amazing. Because again, I mean, it's it's kind of ready made for it in a way. It's ten stories that would easily be a ten episode limited series, and uh, each story is the length of a TV show would be perfect. They're all they're yeah. all novellas. Um, so yeah, so that's there, and I've you know I was lucky enough to have um, one of my stories on Love, Death, and Robots, so that was amazing to see that option carried through that was fantastic to see um so yeah yeah you never know you stay in the game long enough stuff starts happening maybe that's it sorry go ahead i would say robots has been real pop um real productive for a lot of authors getting their their stuff out and you know checking out yeah. new authors yeah it's amazing because tim miller yeah tim tim miller's the sort of uh, the driving force behind that and he's a massive fan of short stories and this is partly why he wanted to make love death and robots uh, mm -hmm. as i understand it you know back in the old mtv heavy metal days and stuff there were these sort of short films that that was you know his love that's where it sort of came from um so when he got the green light with netflix um to to go ahead with love death and robots he was basically right okay here's a huge list of short stories i freaking love um and he started going out and, and asking 
people for the stories and to and to to option the stories um and cohesion press here in australia they do an anthology series called snafu um and there's always a, you know a different themes survival of the fittest future warfare you know last stand and i've been fortunate enough to have stories accepted in in several of of those um anthologies um i've got a new one just coming out next month they've got um snafu dead or alive which is kind of weird west horror stories um but tim miller apparently as it turned out we you know didn't realize until we found out through the publisher but tim miller's a huge fan of that snafu series of anthologies um he's like i love these stories and i want this one and this one and this one and he picked i think like three or four of the snafu stories have been made into episodes of love death and robots so far and i was lucky enough mine was one of them so yeah oh, that's awesome. great yeah have you guys have you guys watched Love, Death, and Robots yet? Yeah, uh, it's yeah, definitely check it yeah, out. Yeah, you should check it out. Definitely watch series three, episode eight, if nothing else, because that's. <laughs> <laughs> you got it. Yeah, yeah, that's probably every every writer's dream is having their uh, their work adapted into you know film or television that's like yeah you know, yeah it is an yeah. amazing thrill it was so awesome to see and when it <laughs> when it first came out because I never I never saw anything they're, they're super strict um with their security and, and stuff like that so I, I hadn't seen anything I saw it when it came out the same as everybody else did um and the series dropped on Netflix the, the equivalent it was a Friday afternoon at five o'clock in the afternoon when the series dropped on Netflix so I'm here taking care of my kid after school um so I was like, I've got him sitting in here at my computer playing Minecraft. And I'm going to go and watch a thing in the other room. Don't don't come in. If you need me, call. Don't come in. <laughs> you know this mad horror story. And so I'm, and I went running in there, and I'm kept refreshing Netflix, waiting for it to waiting for it to drop. And then I'm sitting like this close to the screen, with, so it's not too loud, just to watch and see what they've done with my story. And then I got to see it right then, same as everybody else. It was it was yeah, it was wild. They did a great job of it too. So. That's amazing. Congrats. That's, that's awesome. That's cool. Really cool. So great. I was curious about Event Horizon. You mentioned it's one of your uh, one of your go-to horror movies. Have you heard about the director's cut that we may never see? That uh, I guess they shot some extra footage, but we, I guess the Ooh. studio destroyed it. And there's like half an hour of extra footage that uh, it'll, oh, it'll no. rise in a vault somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> no. No. no, I haven't heard about that. Oh, yeah. why did you tell me that? Now I need yeah. to see that. Oh, yeah. I would love to see that. Yeah, yeah. I hadn't heard that. Yeah, I guess the studio had, I guess they shot some extra footage and they cut it. And uh, I guess it was locked away for a long time. And now they're not sure if they can find it or not. But yeah, there's a really interesting backstory to that whole thing. Uh, there's yeah. uh, some extra scenes that I hope we'll see someday. But, uh, you know. Oh, man. Yeah, I was oh, curious well, if you had looked into that. Yeah. yeah, I'd love to see that if it comes through. I just, yeah. I remember being in high school and just, I love horror. I loved horror. Read Stephen King. You know, Dean Coons really getting into it. And I went and saw that with a friend of mine. I ditched school and went to the movies. And, oh, my God, it was so scary. Even to this day, I remember being so viscerally scared of this movie. Yeah. 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 It, and it's one of those films as well that, like, not only is it a brilliant story and everything, but it uses the medium of film really well. Like, you know, there are some things that are always going to work best as any given thing. It's like, you know, like we mentioned before, Watchmen um alan moore that there's been a movie and a series and stuff like that but the way that that's drawn and laid out and the way that the graphic novel is done it it uses the format of a graphic novel 
like you know the layout and the format is as much part of how the story is delivered as the story itself it's just an it's a superb use of of the medium uh, and event horizons like like that for for a movie you know it's it's like it's it's the sort of thing that's going to always work best as a movie because of the way that it's filmed and the sound and the and the cinematography and stuff it's it's it's, it's a superb use of medium so yeah there's there's that scene that's exactly what you're saying where he he goes out of the airlock and he's kind of flying or, you know, he's being sucked from the ship and he's spinning in the air a little bit. And there's the camera pan along with them with like the um, black backdrop. And do you guys know what I'm talking about? When, when, they, when the guy tries to the airlock. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just, it was so, so scary and so well done. And just yeah. the perfect camera pan. Yeah. And the sound mm. in scenes like that, where, where the way sound drops out and comes back in and stuff in that in that movie it's uh, a, a friend of mine um is is a sound engineer who works in in movies um and only through conversations with him i i obviously we always subconsciously pay attention to the sound in a movie like you can't not you're aware of you know, what's happening with music and foley and everything else uh, it wasn't until talking to him and stopping to really pay attention because he would we would watch film he would be always be like oh wow did you see what did you hear what they just did you know, not did you see that, but did you hear what they just did? Because that was, that's his kind of like, like. Um, and so I started really paying attention to sound in movie, which is in, ironic because I'm deaf in this ear. So I've, I've only got, <laughs> I've only got one functional ear anyway, but I've, I've started really paying like conscious attention to sound in film. And it's amazing. It's such a science and an art. Um, and when a movie is really well scored, you, you notice and half the time it's one of those things that you notice you don't realize that's what you're noticing you're like my god this is such a great movie and you don't realize that a large part of that is because it's so well scored but then when you start paying attention to that and you sort of notice it it yeah it's yeah some some of them are just outstanding so yeah. there's an author that i talk about a lot because i love her work so much and i you know want to introduce other people to her essa hansen and she's a sound engineer for Lucasfilms. Cool. Yeah, very cool. And so that's her day job. And then, you know, she she writes for, I don't want to say for fun, but she writes on the side. Yeah. And her books are written from the perspective of somebody who um, knows how to do sound. Yeah. Knows the importance of sound. And it's something I really enjoyed about her novels very specifically. What, what was her name? Essa Hansen. Essa Hansen. I have her second, actually, I have her second book. This oh, is the yeah. second one in the series. Sweet, it's, okay. Yeah. She's just, and you get a, you get the sound cues that you don't normally get. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, yeah. that's quality. Uh, people, yeah, we need we need people playing to their strengths like that. It's, uh, that, that that's, I was saying this on Twitter the other day, that, you know, that <clears throat> people are like, oh, you know, there's, there's no new ideas or anything like that. It's like, no, no, there's not really. You know, there's you, you can come up with new things, you can come up with new combinations of ideas, or you can apply this idea to that story. It might not have been done before. Fundamentally, there aren't any really new ideas, but every single person writing is unique. You are the only you that there is. So whatever ideas you're working with, you're bringing you to those ideas. And it's and that's what makes stuff brilliant, which is why you shouldn't try to write, you know, for a trend or for try to write for anything other than 
telling the story that you want to tell that only you can tell because you know everybody brings themselves to something and, and nobody else can do that you can give five authors the same story cue and tell them all to write a story you will get five drastically different stories because they're five different people and they they are the only version of that person there is they're the only person who can write that story that's what you need to tap into so yeah that's that's cool that's important i think i have yeah. to check her out yeah, very. Yeah. and the the time always flies on these <laughs> before you know you look up and it's, it's an hour and a half but uh, before oh, we wow. get, before we, yeah before uh, before we, a little time up there i hadn't even noticed that before. <laughs> <laughs> but uh be before we let you go we uh i had one more question for you and uh, we always like to ask this is uh, uh what was your first job uh i have to stop and think about that i've had uh, many jobs my first actual paying job i worked in an aquarium um i i i've always been keen on tropical fish and like keeping tropical fish tank um and the uh local store a couple of villages away from mine was a, was a shop called sea systems and that's where i used to go for my uh i'd go and buy new fish there but you know you'd go and go there for fish food and stuff like that um and the guy was the store was run by a guy and his brother and they had a another guy who there was a teenager who used to work there on weekends um and i really wanted to work in this shop i really you know i didn't really i hadn't had any like part-time job i was like 13 or 14 at this point, you know, I hadn't had any sort of paper routes or anything like that. Um, and so every time I would go into this shop every you know, couple of weeks or every whatever, I would go and I'd say, oh, is there any jobs? Can I work here yet? Can I work? Here? I used to bug the shit out of them basically at that work. <laughs> and then finally one day I turned up and um, the guy, Dave was the name of the guy who, who ran the shop. And I turned up there one day and Dave was like, ah, oh, been wondering when you were coming in. Guess who left last week? And it was like the teenager who had been doing the weekend extra shift. And I was like, oh, wow, really? And he's like, do you want to try out? And so I went to, and so my dad had driven me into the store. Um, and Dave was like, well, we closed at five. Do you want to just leave him here till five and come and get him? We'll see how he goes. So I'd, I'd gone in at lunchtime. I just stayed there. And I, they were showing me around and I was served a couple of customers. I was, I think I was only 14 at the time. Oh. And they just, you know, just had, you know this sort of extra help and so and they were like all right yeah okay you seem to be able to do this do you want the job and so i worked there every saturday and sunday then for for years that that was my first job and ironically i left that job to become a fishmonger so i went from working weekends selling fish as pets to working weekends selling fish for food for people so i then went <laughs> worked in a supermarket on a fishmonger counter for another couple of years then while i was finishing high school so yeah, so there you go. I worked. I worked in an aquarium store selling fish and fish tanks. That was my first job. Yeah. I was like hearing about everyone's first job. I think it's it's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. I've had a lot of jobs. I've done a lot of different things and part time, full time, whatever. But yeah, that was the first one. So, uh, Alan, for people who want to connect with you or find your work, where's the best place to find you? Um, my website's the, the best place to go in the first case. Just myname.com.au. Um, alanbaxter.com.au will take you there um and, and there's all links to us I, i'm i spend way too much time on twitter and all that sort of stuff so you'll find me on twitter just again just my name at alan baxter uh, but all those links are on my website too and anywhere you see you know a book on my site you can learn all about the books and everything else that i do it's all there so that's the best place to go and start i have to say it's a very well put together site uh it's very detailed and so it's well done with the website 
Thank you. Yeah, that's, it's been a long work in progress. And I'm very lucky that a, a good mate of mine um, is uh, a web developer. Um, and so mostly for the technical point of view, mostly that's it's WordPress and it's, it's a customized um, theme in WordPress. But whenever I run into problems, because I, I reach my limit of knowledge very quickly on, <laughs> on this stuff. Um, but this, this Michael, my friend, is amazing. He's uh, he knows his stuff inside out, and it'd be like, so I, I can't do this. Like, all right, I'll have a look at him. He helps me out. So all credit goes to, to Michael Friedman for that. He's uh, he's been an amazing help on putting my website into the shape it's in. So. Awesome. Well, well done, uh, Beth. Where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter. I spend a lot of time on Twitter, also <laughs> uh, at Beth Tabler. And uh, you can find me on Grimdark Magazine. I'm the procurement editor for Grimdark Magazine. And before we go, before we go, blog.com. And Mr. P.L. Stewart, where can people connect with you? Uh, like Alan and Beth, I spend way too much time on Twitter. Um, you know, and uh, but you can also find uh, some of our reviews on before we go blog.com, uh, where I'm, I'm one of Beth's uh, assistant editors under her. And um, my website www.plstore.com where you can find out about the books and uh you know goodreads also from our reviews so and of course page chewing uh with the wonderful steve talks books and taylor from maybe between the pages and we're gonna have to start getting beth some co-host credits here if she keeps this up i'm <laughs> gonna have to, to pull her in there to, to that as well but uh, anyways yeah that's where you can find me awesome well alan we know you're busy we really appreciate you taking the time to come and chat with us we know you have a lot no going problem. on it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. So thanks, everyone, in the chat for coming by and watching. And, of course, PL and Beth, thank you for, for joining us tonight. It's an honor. Honor. So I hope everyone has a great night.